Welcome to episode 16 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. And I'm Bryn Jackson. This week we sat down with Koi Vin over Skype. He's the VP of User Experience at Wildcard. He famously spent some time in the New York Times as a director of design for nytimes.com. And he also just wrote a book. It's called How They Got There. It featured Erica Hall and Wilson Miner, who you've heard on here before. It's featured some of our feature guests. It's a really great book. You should go check it out. It's a good conversation. Yeah, thanks uh, for everyone that checked out both episodes last week. We had a lot of fun releasing two. We've got two episodes as well for this week. Uh, today's with Koi and then another one on Wednesday. Uh, if you have any thoughts or, or feedback on sort of this amount of content or the style of everything we're doing, hit us up on Twitter. We're at Design Details FM. Or you can shoot us uh, an email with your thoughts. It was awesome getting some emails last week. Uh, so hit us up. We're uh, Design Details FM at gmail.com. Totally open to ideas or suggestions. And keep those iTunes ratings coming. We can't get all the way up to the chart without it. We keep hitting it like five. We actually got to four this yeah, week. Yeah, actually. Actually, actually. actually. Uh, iTunes ratings... Guys, get us to number one. Come on. iTunes ratings help us reach more people. So if you have a second, if you're listening to this in on your phone, on your computer, just pull us up in iTunes. Press on... We gotta beat that jerk Leo Laporte. <laughs> press on, guys. that five-star icon. And uh, that helps us out so much more than you know. So thanks to everyone that's done that. And uh, quickly, before we get into the show, let's thank our sponsors. Huge thank you once again to IconFinder.com. Copen homies. Our Copen homies from across the sea who are sharing wonderful, wonderful pixels and icons with all of us in the design community. We got a confirmed count. We got a get. Yeah, they actually it's responded. Five hundred thousand. They're about to cross five hundred thousand. They had to delete some fraudulent icons. Thankfully, they do that. Uh, I think some robots snuck in there. Almost. <laughs> Wait patiently, buddy. Hold on. <laughs> Icon Finder is still the largest premium source of vector icons on the web. Robot. Oh wow, wow! Now that you mention that, if you use the <laughs> promo code Robot, you're going to get fifty percent. Off your first month of Icon Finder Pro, which is their subscription service that gives you access to lots and lots of downloads uh, for any icon on their platform. Robot. Robot. Is it? Is, did someone say robot? <laughs> nice. But yeah, Icon robot. Finder, uh, they have icons for anything you could be working on. Uh, in all file formats, they're going to work in any application you're working with, whether that's Sketch, Photoshop, Illustrator. Uh, all the icons come in different styles. So if you're designing an app for iOS 7 and you want a pretty line icon, they have that. You can just search for anything you need. It's a really wonderful service. If you check them out, that's iconfinder.com and be sure to use the promo code ROBOT to save 50% off your first month. Thanks again so much to iconfinder.com. Thanks, Copen Homies. Thanks, Copen Homies. This episode is also brought to you by Envision. This is something that Brian and I use constantly. I spent probably like three hours on Envision today, which is kind of a lot. It's like a whole flow. Really, really What good. is Envision, Bryn? Envision <laughs> is the only design platform that lets people experience your vision instead of having it explained to them, Brian. Did you know that? <laughs> I did not. Tell me if, more. If, if I had Envision and you could see it right now, it would explain this to you. I wouldn't have to. Okay, but... You could it, see the vision of Envision. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah but, but this is a podcast, so you have to tell people what it is. You just upload your designs, and in a few clicks, you'll have a fully interactive prototype you can use in presentations, review sessions, even user tests. All right. Not podcasts. <laughs> Not in podcasts. Plus, people can add their feedback, including copy updates right on your design. So it's faster and easier to iterate your way to the perfect solution. But not podcasts. Jokes aside, it really is the, one of the best ways to prototype anything and, and get your it's des- wonderful design ideas in front of customers or non-designers on the team, stakeholders and actually show them what you want something to like, feel like oh like you don't have to draw like these complicated mock-ups with arrows from this screen goes to this screen to this screen to this screen to this screen and you can show them all your edge states when things aren't there like it's really great yeah it's like what happens if i click on this button you can actually just let people click on that button Wait, which button that button that button okay no yeah, yeah that button okay. and Got it'll it. go to where you want that button to go to it's it's magic and non-designers get it, and stakeholders in your organization and customers are going to get it. All my friends at Twitter and Adobe and Airbnb, Evernote, Facebook, like they all use it. It's one of the best tools in the industry. Everyone, everywhere is using it because it's great. I don't think you have that many friends, Bryn. Yeah. 
<laughs> I know people who know people. All, all right? right. Fair enough. You can check them out today and let them know you came from the show by going to envisionapp.com slash sign up slash design details. All one word. Thanks again to Envision. Thanks, Envision. And with that, let's get into episode 16 with Koi Vin. Okay, so right now I'm working on Wildcard. We're actually getting ready to... We're actually in the middle of developing a, a major um, new version, which I don't want to talk about too much right now. But like the overall mission is still really exciting to me. It's this idea that we're going to create this alternative, this third option between... A, um, a a mobile web browser which has tremendous breadth but um, is really kind of a poor experience when it comes down to it like people I mean relative to to how often people open up mobile safari it's um, it's probably the least love app on their phone um, and mobile chrome as well um, and on the other hand you have native apps which are terrific very rich and, and powerful but um, you really have to know ahead of time that you want this app and, and actually going to get the app from the app store and downloading it and installing it is uh, is um, quite a bit of friction so we, we're trying to create um, Wildcard um, as an alternative it's a, a native iOS app that lets you um, lets you have the breadth of a web browser but have the the richness of of interactivity of uh, a native app who came up with the idea the idea is the brainchild of the three founders um jordan cooper is the ceo doug mechanics who is the vp of engineering and eric tang who is a uh, uh, CTO. Um, they put the company together uh, in t- early 2013, and I joined it. Um, um, well, I officially joined it full time in January of 2014, but I started working with them a couple days a week in the fall of 2013, and was quickly sort of, you know, became very enamored with the mission, and also really enamored with the team. It's just a really great bunch of people, um, and we have fantastic offices. Um, um, not fantastic in like you know crazy startup lavish offices, but just really really great humble um, sort of really soulful offices in um, the Chinatown slash Little Italy area of downtown Manhattan. Awesome, that's awesome. And sorry, can, what's your role there again? Are you just doing uh, product work, design work? My title is VP of User Experience, so I'm a designer or product designer or whatever you want to call it. Um, there's really only one other designer, Steve Misaras, who is this incredibly talented guy that um, joined just before I did. Um, I actually recruited him to Wildcard while I was freelancing with them. Uh, so he and I are working on product stuff every day, like figuring out how to evolve our app and figuring out... We, we have a number of sort of B2B tools as well, stuff for publishers, stuff for app developers. Um, and so, um, so we're, we're splitting those duties. So what led to you choosing the title VP of user experience over something like design or product design? Or does it matter? <laughs> I actually didn't put that much, much thought into it. Um, for me, I like the the title of user experience a little bit better because it's a little bit more comprehensive than just product design. You know, we're thinking about building a company, not just a product. And to me, the user experience is a really fundamental part of the whole company. It's it's obviously an important part of any product too. But we want to think about the user experience as you know, like every touch point with the company, um, and not just the product. And I, but I have nothing against the title of product design or anything like that. I, I mean, um, there's, I mean, the, the if there's one constant in this business is that that titles, the meanings of titles and their fashion are, are always shifting, and uh, and there's always going to be some newer, you know, sexier title that people want. What have been some of the like biggest challenges with Wildcard, or, or things that you're discovering that you never really considered? as a designer before? So, I mean, our big challenge is really on the, the data front. Um, you know, we're trying to, I mean, it's, this is very, like a grossly inaccurate way of thinking about it, but we're kind of like a proxy to the rest of the internet in that we sort of translate things into cards for people. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and we're doing that all um, um, well, we're doing some of that on the fly and we're doing a lot of it through a, a number of tools and methods that we've built we've bit off like a, a pretty big challenge in terms of making a really seamless web composed of just cards um, and the 1.0 version that we released last fall is um, only I think um, like only fulfills I, I think like a fraction of that promise I think it's like we're really proud of the 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 first cut that it took, but there's a lot more work to do. Um, and so, you know, creating a, a holistic product that is like a convincing or a viable replacement for mobile Safari or mobile Chrome um, is like the biggest, the biggest challenge facing the company, making something that, that people can look at and say, okay, yeah, that will work for me. Um, and that's why I think this, the founders have been really smart about thinking about this as a long campaign, not just something that's going to happen overnight or in, over the course of like six or twelve or eighteen months. This is like we're in it for the long haul to try to affect this, you know, pretty major change in the way people think about accessing content and features and and, and transactions on their phone. There's been like so many blog posts in the last year. Maybe you wrote one. It was like why cards are are the future and like why cards are such a big deal. Right. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, there's there's two ways of thinking about cards. The first way I think is pretty self-evident. It's just the idea that you can take bite-sized chunks of content or functionality and put it in um, a little rectangle that looks like a card. And it's... Um, it's easily understood as being like a single purpose unit of information or unit of, of interface, actually. Um, and you see that in, you know, sort of famously in apps like Tinder. You see that in, on Pinterest. You see that all over the place. Um, and that's, I think, really important and, and, um, and a key part of this idea that we can sort of atomize content and functionality. Um, the other side of it is that these cards can sort of be little portals of functionality so that if you are if you call up a card from i don't know let's say like like, like um an airline you can actually interact with the airline through that card in the context of wherever you are currently whether it's you know on a social network or whether it's on um, or in a, in a card oriented browsing experience like wildcard you can through that card access everything you need just at that moment from the airline you can if you have a card that is a flight tracker you can you know enter in um, the flight number and follow the um, the flight's progress if you want to you know do research for um, you know like getaways you can do that through an- another card that's focused on finding interesting destinations if you want to to um, you know check prices for um, you know a standard route you can do that through something that will they'll give you um, you know a quick overview of prices out there. So um, the idea is that you present this information in these bite-sized chunks and each one is very focused, but you also use the card as a way of giving you access to functionality that um, might be located somewhere else so that you can you don't have to go out to another website. You don't have to go out to another app. You can just bring it in there or, or call it up right where you are. It- Everyone's switching to cards, though. Does it, do you think this makes sense for all kinds of web data, or are there cases where sometimes this doesn't work? I think with every every design metaphor, you have to make sure it's appropriate to the design problem you're you're trying to solve. And when you read, you know, a bunch of blog posts, like maybe the ones I've written that say cards the next best thing, like not everybody is going to really understand that. Okay, cards are for specific kinds of. Uh, of problems, and you know they might be overeager in translating to cards. Um, but on the other hand, you know cards are just a different kind of of user interface metaphor. I mean, we are still in a way caught up in the metaphor of pages um, in mobile browsers, and um, you know you could argue that a lot of what you access in 
Safari or Chrome on your phone is not really best consumed in in the um, in the metaphor of a page. Yeah, it's a bad default UI for a lot of things, for sure. I, so you wrote about this, and you're a prolific writer. How did this? How did your site subtraction get started? What? How do you have <laughs> the time to write all of these things? It's crazy. Um, I I mean I started I. I registered my domain names, um, subtraction.com, quite a long time ago, really before there were blogs. Like, I'm, I'm old enough to, to remember that time. And it really had no purpose. I just saw this great domain name. I grabbed it. I mean, I really liked it. I grabbed it, and I started trying to figure out what to do with it. And I used it as a portfolio site for a while, and I used it as a kind of like a pin board for just like stuff that I liked for a while. Um, and then when blogging came along... I was like, oh, well, this is an easy way to update the site regularly without a lot of trouble. And, um, and at first I was just posting short links. And then over time, um, I sort of got wrapped up in this idea of like writing for the blog. Um, and I had always liked writing and I always thought that I, I was a pretty good writer, um, ever since you know high school and so this was an outlet for me to write because I wasn't getting paid to write anywhere else um, and then it just sort of built momentum and as as various things happened in my career that were you know positive for me the blog seemed to amplify it and um, and would the, the blog would lead to other opportunities and so it just sort of became this this um, important calling card in my life and in some ways it's sort of like it's sort of like I built this machine like in my living room that I can't get rid of now because it's like constantly demanding to be fed. <laughs> and it's like if I don't feed it, then it's just this thing that's just sitting there in my living room with like no purpose. So, um, like so beware. The, yeah, I, I mean, that's something I struggle with and I know lots of designers struggle with is like we all write something and we feel great and like this momentum and then it dies off super quick. So how do yeah. You, how do you do it so consistently? <laughs> yeah. I wrote a book like it took me a year to write this. We can talk about it later. I'm not trying to squeeze in the book, but like it took me a year to write the book and I had like this great response when I released it a month ago. And like now it's like, you know, it's like, okay, what's next? What, what, what other product can you, can you put out there into the world? Well, I heard a lot of requests for a second book. Yes, yeah, there are, and I would love to do that. I mean, if I can find the time. <laughs> well, back That's up fair. first. I, yeah. I guess for people listening that don't know, tell us about your first book. Um, I got it. So the first first book, um, or the the book, the most recent book, the most recent book. Oh, I didn't. Most all of the book. above. All of the above. Yeah, <laughs> let's talk about your your <laughs> writing career. The first first book uh, came out five years ago. It was called Ordering Disorder, Grid Principles for Web Design, and it's now woefully out of date because it really... I, I really published it. It was really like the, the, the ideas behind using grid-based layouts for web pages um, really at the tail end of that era and at the very beginning of the, um, the responsive design era. Um, the new book is called uh, How They Got There, Interviews with Digital Designers About Their Careers. And it's hopefully it will have a longer shelf life because it's not tied to any specific you know, design innovation. Yeah. Um, just after you published it, we spoke to Erica Hall. Oh, which yes, I saw. Which yeah. was really interesting because you had just released the her chapter. Right. Which was amazing. I mean... Yeah, she's amazing. Great. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Like, so I, the idea behind the book is like, I wanted to sit down with all these people, many more people than I was able to actually, to hear their war stories about how they put together their careers. Cause that was a part of any profile that I read about these people. That was the part that always interested me the most. And also it was the part that I felt like, you know, was most useful to me because it doesn't matter where you are in your career. You're always sort of thinking about like, like, oh, how do I get to the next stage, or, or what am I doing today that that might lead somewhere else? And when you hear those stories from people who have put together you know, these really, really phenomenal careers, like Erica has, I think it's just it can be really, uh, really edifying and really, really inspiring. And I mean, the best part for me doing this book was like I got to hear all these stories for myself, and I just felt like really invigorated myself. So. How did you pick the people that you wrote about? 
Um, so I knew that I wanted to get a, a, a decent mix of, of certain types of people. I wanted to get um, people who had been in the industry, f- you know, for a long time, basically since the first web boom. And I wanted to get people who been in the industry less than 10 years. I wanted to get people who had been on the agency side and people who had been on the product side. I wanted to get people who had worked at big companies and worked at small companies. I wanted to get a, a really good mix of, of men and women. Um, and so I started with my network and asking people that I knew. Um, like Erica was the first, Naz Hamid from Weight Shift. He and I have been friends um, for a long, long time. He was the second and then I asked for people for recommendations. There was really no game plan, and I sort of just went from person to person almost organically. Um, and I, di- I didn't know exactly how many people I would get until I, you know, I sat down and I realized I had about enough for a book. Um, in retrospect, you know, I probably sort of whiffed on getting enough representation in there for you know people uh, who are not, you know, like you know, white and, and, you know, and come from white collar families. So, um, that's one thing that I would really like to correct in the next version of the book. It's something I've I've thought about a lot since the book was released. I'm especially curious just as a kind of wannabe writer, um, would you up for sharing like how the book sort of performed and is that sort of a side career or income stream that you could pursue? Um, yeah, I'd be more than happy to talk about it. I mean, I'm actually, I'm trying to figure out how specific I can be, because um, I want um, want to write about this um, um, soon on another forum. But I can t- tell you that the first book, which came out in 2010, was published by New Riders, and I got a pretty decent advance um, on the royalty for that book. Um, so if you take that advance and you take the royalties that I've been earning in the five years since the book that book came out and you add them up I did better than that total sum in the first month of self-publishing this book than I did in that, that whole five years nice. um, um, of course for this book I had to um, I had to you know from my own pocket like front all the money I had to hire an editor I had to hire I had to, to get the the transcriptions done from the recordings of the interviews I had to you know, build my own website and host it and do all the marketing and stuff like that. I mean, it's not a tremendous amount of money. Um, so the total gross isn't, um, is still just about as much as I, I earned in the, the previous five years. Um, and it was a lot harder this time out because, you know, I had to figure everything out on my own. But I think it was well worth it because at the end of the day, I will do a lot better on this book than I did on the last book. And, I'll also own all the rights, which I think is really important, so I can you know do That's more amazing. interesting things with it going forward. Yeah, especially, I mean, I guess it's doing well enough that you're considering a second one. I think that says quite a lot. Yeah, I mean, that said, it's not going to, it's not going to you know change my, my lifestyle like right now. I mean, unless I, I get a lot more aggressive about about marketing the book, um, uh, it's um, it's it's real money, but it's not like life changing money or anything. You live in New York, right? Yes. Yeah. I live in Brooklyn. Yeah. Work in Manhattan. How's the design scene over there for you? I mean, it's great. I mean, I've been here a long time, so I have deep, deep roots here. And I know a lot of folks around town and I think there's lots of interesting stuff going on. And there's, there's lots of, there's lots of stimulation for designers here. Like there's, you know, especially as the weather gets warmer, you know, as we get closer to, to spring and summer, there will be nights here, like weeknights, where you could go to like three or four design things around town, like and just just see like everybody you know. Um, I don't really do that anymore, but it's nice to know it's th- that it's there. And you know, there's you know museums and galleries and everything around town. So there's there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff to make life interesting for designers here. Definitely, especially as a startup there. Um. I mean, we're we're obviously on the West Coast and have a slightly different perspective. I'm curious what that is like building a startup there, if, if there's any difference at all. Yeah, I think there there is a difference for startups here. I think I think um, everybody would agree that New York is not as mature a startup ecosystem as as the Bay Area. Um, it's not 
as mature in terms of the the depth of talent here. I think there's tons of talented people. I just don't think there are as many as out there. Um, I also think it's not as mature in terms of how people think about startups. Um, I think it's th- this is starting to change, but I think companies, new companies here, tend to think about you know getting to revenue much more much more practically than companies in, in the Bay Area. Um, and I think people here, they, um, I actually had an investor tell me in general, they were, they were more focused on just being practical than, than in the Bay Area. You couldn't say that's a positive or a negative, sure. but I, I think, I think in the Bay Area, from what I see, you know, I mean, I, I go out there a few times a year and I, I know a decent number of folks, but what I see is, for better or for worse, people ha- like they have crazy, ambitious, and, and sometimes ridiculous um, ideas for their businesses, and, um, and yet they make them work. Um, out here, people are more, I think, practical, like more business businessy in the yeah. traditional <laughs> sense of the word business. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, right. Makes sense. You've been involved with some pretty. Um abstract projects as well you recently did something with adobe which was a little more i'd say obvious in that it, it's very clear that that should have been a thing for a long time but then you were also involved with mixel mm-hmm. uh, was that your thing or was that something that you just helped out with no mixel was mine like i was actually when i left um new york times in 2010 mixel was a startup that i did um, I, I raised money for it. I, I, you know, my co-founder and I, we built a little staff around it. We, we had several iterations of the product, and um, you know, we really tried to make a go of it. Um, yeah, it was quite abstract, probably in the in the wrong ways. Like it wasn't um, it wasn't abstract it wasn't abstract in, in a way that was going to scale. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, Mixel was a um, it was an iPad app that try to combine art making with um with uh social it tried to make um make it really fun to to create works um basically through the medium of collage basically taking images that you could find anywhere on, on the web and collaging them together with a, a really simple easy set of tools and then putting them into a, a social network where anybody else could could remix what you've done um and um, the the chain of remixes was preserved, so you could always see where ideas evolved from, and you could always fork them and and continue to evolve them. Um, I mean, I thought it was tons of fun, but it was it was quite abstract and probably not not immediately understandable enough to enough people that. Um, um, that it could ever really have scaled. And that's just sort of a painful lesson that we learned after a couple of years of, of working at it. Was that just a goal you had that you wanted to like help people be more creative? Or was it an idea that you just wanted to play with and share with others? How, how did that come about? I mean, I really... I mean, there were a couple of inspirations. First, I really believe strongly that tablets have this enormous potential to change up the way we work and the way we create. Um, and so in 2010, when I was thinking about what what my startup was going to be about, I was really inspired by the iPad, and I thought there was a lot of... I still think there's a lot of stuff that we can do with tablets. And um, and the project with Adobe, I think, is a direct outgrowth of, of yeah. those ideas. It certainly seems as though you believe that. <laughs> Wait, sorry, which yeah. Adobe, Adobe project are you talking so, about? So this is... It was just announced last month. It's called... Um, Adobe Comp CC. Oh, I just <laughs> I downloaded that today. Yeah. yeah. Ah, nice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we, we debuted it at Adobe's Max Conference last, last October as Project Layup. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is an, uh, an app that makes it really easy to um, explore, for designers to explore layout, layout ideas on their iPad. Um, and the way we make it easy is that um, we, we focus a lot on trying to to lower the friction of manipulating you know, design objects on a tablet. Um, all the other apps that I've seen that try to do this, I think, are a little bit too literal in terms of translating how it works on a desktop. And what we've done is we've let you, basically, if you want 
a triangle, you draw a triangle. If you want a headline, you draw a box for a headline. If you want a block of text, you you draw a block of text um, just by swiping a few lines on the screen. It instantly turns this into real objects, and um, um, and it makes it's it's a very natural sort of native way of working on the on the tablet. It's something that couldn't really happen on the desktop. And maybe it could happen on the phone, um, but it's really, with, with all the screen real estate of a tablet, it, it just seems like, oh yeah, this is the way we should be working on a tablet. Um, additionally, it does away with um, file management entirely because it has this really rich history feature where you can just drag on this timeline and go back to any point in your explorations, like as you're moving objects around on logos and, and pictures, it saves every little iteration and, and the timeline lets you jump back to, to any point of your exploration and and say, okay, I like that idea or I like that idea from 15 minutes ago or 20 minutes ago and then export that stuff out through Adobe's Creative Cloud um, to directly to Illustrator, Photoshop, or InDesign. And, and when it goes out to those those applications it actually opens up as a native file so it's you know it's real pixels in photoshop or real vectors in 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 illustrator or real text objects in 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 design so it really complements the way designers work um already that's amazing yeah it's like replacing the napkin right like these yeah exactly yeah just quick sketches ah that's such a cool idea yeah the idea is that to like we don't think that you'll You'll finish a design project on, on CompCC, but we would really we think it's going to be great for you to take your iPad and go somewhere that's more relaxing, like a park bench, or you know, sit down on a couch and start your projects there and just just um, explore the creative possibilities. I'm sort of uh, of the same mind as you, though, about the possibility of tablets. Like, I feel like I haven't found it. I'm curious what other areas you think there's room for improvement and like how you would think about tablets in general even for design well i mean i think i mean i think comp cc is probably like my current best guess as to how that will work um and in a way like if i could describe the things that it's not i think it's important i think it's it's not a a port of a desktop app. It's specifically not called like Illustrator for iPad or something, or, or yeah. InDesign for iPad. It's something that's native um, to to the tablet. It's and it's also not a recreation of real world tools or real world art materials. And I think um, it's I think I think that's the trap that um, the iPad fell into early on is like creating replica software that was was a replica of something else. Um, there were a lot of replica magazine apps early on, um, and that I think really wasted a lot of of the early potential of the iPad, and, and I think got people frustrated there. Um, when I say replica, I mean it just page for page recreated like what you could get. Yeah, it was the exact. Yeah, same. Um, and I think more successful is the idea of, of recreating like real world real world art materials um, which you see um, like Adobe has some apps like that um, Paper is an app like that um, and some other folks have apps like that and I think that, that those things are fine because they're recognizable to the user um, but I don't think they they are quite as successful as as I was, would hope they would be in terms of taking advantage of the unique way people relate to tablets like these are the tablet is not like uh, a um, you know it's not a canvas it's not a, a pad of sketch paper. A tablet is a real computer, a very powerful computer. So it has social qualities. It has you know it has you know image recognition qualities. It has uh, all this added intelligence that real world materials don't have. And I think I think that's stuff that can really really make tablet apps unique and different from any other kind of software. Um, and that's that's the direction I would like to see that go. And I think CompCC is like a, a pretty good stab at that. What do you think about uh, tablet apps that use, or I guess iPad apps that use a stylus as an input, like the paper and maybe a couple others? You know, I've tried that. I've got paper, a 53's uh, stylus. Yeah, and I've got, yeah. I, 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 I've got maybe two or three other things. Is um, that the right direction? 
I think it is the right direction for certain for certain users, and I actually think Apple thinks of the tablet now. I think it's either a pure consumption device or it's an enterprise device, and I, I don't think that they're thinking much about like the middle. Um, and may, I, I could be completely wrong, but that, that's that's my impression. Um, so I don't think consumers are going to use styluses, and I th- think possibly you know professional or enterprise users might use them. But I think there's sort of like this fat mill of folks who could really get tons of benefit from a, from a tablet, and I, but I don't think styluses are the right way for, for those users. I mean, for me, I, f- I sort of feel like I'm in that middle. Like, I don't, I, I don't really use um, my iPad for, um, like, enterprise-level work, but, but I do do a, a fair amount of creation on it, and I almost never have my stylus with me. I always forget it. It just doesn't feel like an essential tool to bring with me do you ever do non um non-visual creation there do you ever write on your ipad yeah i will once once in a while when i'm without my laptop yeah i will i mean i've got on trips with no laptop and and just a, a bluetooth keyboard and my ipad and i've done writing how does the tablet experience influence what you're thinking about with uh wildcards and and how the tablet experience should look there I think for us, the first frontier is the phone and possibly like wearables like the watch. And I think ta- tablets will come after we've figured out um, those those devices. So it's it's not on our immediate, you know, like radar right now. Yeah, Wildcard seems like a really natural fit with where things are going with glances and things like that. Like, mm-hmm. Right. Very native fit. Yeah. When you say right. watch, do you mean Apple Watch or any smartwatch? I guess Apple Watch since you're iOS right now. I, I think I, I primarily mean Apple Watch because it's probably going to be like the only serious game in town before long um, when it comes out. Um, but I think wearables as a category is going to get you know a lot more robust. So you worked in you started your own studio, right? At one point, I did a long time ago with a few other co-founders. Yeah, a uh, little design <laughs> You've agency. Been all over the place, man. Yeah, that, I know. that's where I was going. Is <laughs> you you started a studio, you worked <laughs> at like the biggest publication on earth, or or somewhere near. Um, now you're at a startup. Yeah. You're also, really big on Twitter. You've got this great blog, and and you've remained very open about your personal life on all of them. In like in full view of the internet, you talk about. Uh, your dog you talk about your kids being born how do you approach that is is there like strong lines you set there or I, to me to, to me I, I mean to be honest like there's not like i don't have a clear policy on how to do that like everything is a negotiation like i constantly struggle with like how much to reveal on my blog on twitter on any of these other social outlets um and like I often feel like I, I feel like one of the things that really th- that universally works in digital media is being like incredibly honest and I feel like I'm pretty honest I don't feel like I'm incredibly honest <laughs> and, still got a little work to do yeah well, I mean I, I, I hold back a lot of things and I try to be diplomatic a lot of ways and sometimes I just you know I just will not talk about stuff that I would rather not talk about um, publicly and especially like with my family life like I mentioned my family but I don't really talk about everything that's going on in the family but I'm the point I was trying to make is like I'm constantly debating about okay should I be more honest like there's there's real impetus or incentive to be more honest online and the other hand like like I don't necessarily feel the need to put everything out there and so um so yeah i i just like every day i just sort of figure out like what's what's today's honesty level going to be so one of the other questions i had uh the twitter picture whenever i say koi they're like oh batman (laughs) where did that come from on the related topic of being honest and open (laughs) yeah um (laughs) I've been using that thing a long time, and I think it just started out as a lark. Like, it's, it's, um, 
like you know when I was a kid I was a, a, a big comic book nerd and I still sort of like that that genre of entertainment um anything but, in particular right now um there's this series I wrote about recently called um Lazarus that I think is amazing okay. Greg Rucka is a writer he's an amazing writer when we first started identifying ourselves by avatars like in the late 90s I just sort of looked around and I was like I guess I guess I'll just use this picture that I found <laughs> and I always I've always believed in David Byrne's um, sort of you know famous quote that I, I can't remember it word for word but I think he said people will remember you better if you always wear the same outfit and so I've always believed like wherever I go I should just using the same avatar and I've deviated from that in the past several years as I realized like this avatar is ridiculous <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't be using this anymore but I still feel very attached to it so yeah like if you change it on Twitter no one would even recognize your tweets anymore yeah so actually for a long time I couldn't get a, a higher res version of that picture but now the those old 60s Batman TV shows have come out on Blu-ray and I'm just trying to find the time to go and look for that same image and get a higher res version of it. I think the low res is kind of endearing. Oh, you think so? <laughs> it has an authenticity yeah. to it. Yeah, it's it's more authentic than a retina. Because right, right. retina says you spent a lot of time looking for it. Yeah, you know, true. It says like, yeah, that, I'm very casual. About right, this. it's a kind of unbecoming. Yeah. I just dig Batman. <laughs> yeah. And then it's I'm, like, wait, is that him like at a party dressed as Batman, or is it like the actual Batman? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> that would be awesome if people thought it was actually me dressed as Batman. <laughs> hey, we can tell people whatever you want. I, I kind of want to go back to the honesty and authenticity thing, because that's something I go back and forth a lot on as well, and I would just love to hear your thought process. Like, Some days it feels like you can make the world a better place by sharing some of your personal struggles and stories. Mm-hmm. And then maybe even like an hour later, I look at it and I'm like, who cares? Like no one's going to care about this. This is something I need to figure out on my own. The internet doesn't need more of this. That's how I, I feel sometimes anyways. I, I don't know yeah. if that's your similar experience or how do you think through that? Well, on the one hand, Brian, yeah, <laughs> sorry, getting into some pretty, Philosoph- yeah, I did. philosophical topics here. Yeah, I didn't really know, realize this was going to be that kind of podcast. <laughs> what kind of podcast did you think it was going to be? <laughs> details, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thought we were going to be like examining some some designs and critiquing them. No, I I mean, I, I know what you mean. Like there, there are days when I just want to unload like on Twitter or on my blog or something and I have, or I have an axe to grind. Um, and the thing about social media is it's particularly good as an outlet for negative energy. <laughs> On the other hand, I think it's also fine. Like, I think there's unlimited space out there, and if if you want to use these channels as a way to to let off some steam, I think that's. I mean, some people might get upset, but that's fine too. Like, they they don't have to follow you. They don't have to to listen to you. It's all, it's it's all optional. <laughs> None of this is compulsory. So. so Jason Fried published a post today, actually. It was like, yeah, uh, did, you saw that one. Yeah, I actually saw that. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. what it reminds me of. Is he's like, I go on Twitter and all I feel like I come away just feeling so down on on life and on humanity. And then I go to Instagram and I, I feel all light and happy. And <laughs> I didn't see that. <laughs> you, you should read it. Yeah, we'll, we'll link to it in the show notes. Yeah. I, I sometimes battle with that as well. Like, is is Twitter the place to be negative or like? I don't know. So sometimes I do some of that venting, I guess, in person with people I trust rather than mm-hmm. the internet, as Bryn here knows. Yeah, I, I thought Jason's post was pretty interesting. I think w- one thing, though, is, like, you... I think Twitter... It's probably true that Twitter is more sort of optimized for negativity than Instagram. Yeah. Um, and I think that's exactly what Jason is talking about. Like, you know, um, the way like a product makes you feel is in some ways not an accident like you know you can create an environment that is really optimized for making you feel good but you know and he argues that that instagram is that and and that twitter's not necessarily um as well optimized i think you could also have a pretty good experience on on twitter you just need to work at cultivating you know your follow lists a little bit more carefully Similarly, like when I was first trying to 
sort of decipher the like the success of Instagram, I started at first I was just following the people I knew, mostly like people from the design world or people from my from my Twitter graph. And then I got some advice like start following people like that you would never have thought to follow. And you know, there's there's lots of interesting people on Twitter and um there's lots of to me to me anyway like stuff that's really depressing on i mean on, on instagram and there's lots of stuff that's really depressing on instagram too like people who are using instagram as like um like a showcase for for you know like extravagant shallowness and it's it's very well suited for that as well and and twitter is not quite as well suited for that so it's it it depends like if you're willing to to cultivate the experience that you want that you can probably get it out of each of these platforms there's that tumblr is like a spoiled children of instagram or something yeah no i don't think i saw that it's just screen caps of like 16 year olds on instagram like so (laughs) pissed i got a white bmw on on my birthday or something right right it's an outlet for that too i guess yeah yeah I see lots of complaint on Twitter without any action. And that is like my biggest pet peeve is like, if yeah. you're going to complain about something in public, at least have a plan as to how you are going to improve that. Like it's, ugh. yeah. Pretty, yeah. Just an aside. No, no, definitely. I agree. I think that's really negative for you to say. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. What's, what's know, the right? solution? Bro? <laughs> Get off Twitter. <laughs> Stop tweeting. Yeah. I, some of the like honesty things and, I don't know. I'm trying to think like what is that solving to or what's I think not? I think it's valid to have a place to let off steam. I I absolutely think it's valid to have a place for that purpose. Um so um you know, and, and it's that's better than, you know, a lot of other alternatives. I mean, I'd rather have somebody just rant on Twitter, on Twitter for a while that I can just ignore or that I likely miss because I I'm not scanning Twitter, you know, 24 hours a day. Like, I'm scanning Twitter maybe, like, you know, a, a, a few hours a day at most, so. You post pretty frequently, and you post lots of, like, helpful content for people, it seems. Uh, things like job postings, things like that. What got you started with that? Mm, so, a few years ago, I started taking, like, my Twitter following seriously. Like, I, I want to provide some value to people who follow me. Um, and so... Like in all, like the the reading that I do, like I figure, oh, this stuff would be really you know, interesting to other folks. Um, I use Buffer app, bufferapp.com. Oh, interesting. I've never, I've never yeah. heard that. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Why am I? Why did I say it like that? I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, <it's cool. laughs> um, yes. Um, I'll show you how it works sometime, Ryan. Um, Please do. Yeah. <laughs> he he um, really actually needs to learn. Yeah. We, we can we can talk <laughs> yeah. after this. I want to hear your thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. Total brain fart. Anyway. Um, and that I think helped me um, help me post more because I think earlier before I started using it I, I, I was kind of discouraged by like I could have a flurry of like five interesting things to tweet but I wouldn't get any mileage out of it because as soon as I stopped tweeting like in that like 10 or 15 minute time span like there was I was my account was effectively like you know like dead <laughs> until the next time I tweeted so Buffer helps me spread it out a bit and um, it makes I think makes me feel better about my presence online yeah totally not a planned plug Ryan's straight up hey, right I'm well first of all I'm flattered <laughs> uh, no, that's cool and that's the same reason I use it uh, just to spread things out and like try and right. have some sort of consistency actually maybe we can chat about that because I think some designers and people in the tech community disagree with that yeah, I agree with what. Um, it can come across as inauthentic to to schedule something and and try and make it feel like it's an in the moment personal thought. Yeah, uh, I think that's only when it's like very clearly like a suggested tweet or things like that. That's the only time that I'm like, uh, yeah, you don't care about that at all. Or if that's the only thing they ever post, it's always like Buffly links every five seconds and. <laughs> Well, I think who the Ethan. I, I remember seeing Ethan Marcotte say that he. I can't remember how he did it, but he actively like screened out tweets that were came from a, a you know the Buffer client. Yeah, and, people doing that as well. Yeah, <laughs> and that's 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 fine too. I guess. I mean, 
um, I don't know. I mean, for me, it it worked. It is it's helped me, not just help me spread stuff out, but is like encouraged me to be more active on Twitter in general, and and probably post more more of the moment stuff than I would have otherwise. So that's I guess will be my my counter argument. I kind of have a shallow question. Um, how the hell did you get so many Twitter followers? Um. I I was featured for a while on Twitter uh, on Twitter like suggested Wait, like yeah, yeah I'm before sure you were featured when I when I started yeah I, I think thought that would be the answer I think before <laughs> how can I get featured yeah you can't not anymore no you well, can't I think today they're much more um, they're much more intelligent about the way they suggest people to follow but um, in in olden days there was a, a more finite list man because you got you got a bunch yeah <laughs> but I'll tell you like. Having tons of Twitter followers does not necessarily, you know, doesn't get you, you know, to the head of the line at any amusement parks. It doesn't get you a lower <laughs> rate when you go for a mortgage or anything like that. It's there's there's limited usefulness. Does it feel like it puts you under a microscope? I don't know. I don't know if I feel that way. Um, yeah, I guess I just mostly just feel fortunate that I have an audience of people, and I try to, I. I try to respect that, you know, happenstance by by posting, you know, good stuff or stuff that I think is good. I'm glad you do. Yeah, that's cool. Okay. Yeah, I feel like that's sort of a ongoing struggle for at least new designers too. Is how do I even get started building a following? Like as a person, I think you have to just yeah. share valuable things or well, do interesting things. We can both thank Twitter for our jobs. Yes. Honestly. Yes. Yeah, Twitter got me my job. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I tweeted at Buffer saying, or I was like responding to uh, Sasha Grief. He was he mm. tweeted, he was like, oh, I love Buffer. And I just responded. I said, me too, blah, blah, blah. And <laughs> someone at the company saw it and happened to, to click the tweet and click through. And That's awesome. Things went from there, yeah. Yeah. But I'll tell you, like in terms of building a following, like I was blogging for several years with about like 15 regular readers and one of whom was Naz Hamid who is a very good friend of mine these days from, from Weight Shift mm-hmm. um, and um, I don't know you gotta start somewhere like, like I definitely I used to have comments on my site and it was definitely like either zero comments or like one comment from Naz and one comment from like my friend Virginia and that was it <laughs> so how was it coming up in the industry without things like Twitter to help you out was it a lot of like apprenticeship and like jumping in with people just however you could or I don't know if it was I mean it was certainly different in that like the real time constantly ongoing you know conversation nature of Twitter and and Facebook and everything was not there so things maybe moved a little bit slower but it wasn't that different in terms of like like even before Twitter like the community formed really really early on and bonded pretty well um and that feels basically the same as on twitter i mean it's on twitter it's like it's easier for me to get to know somebody that somebody somebody new get to know their their output and their work and and then have a conversation with them um but it wasn't that difficult beforehand because you know blogs and commenting and um and you know, other similar outlets were were there. So, um, it's changed, and then it hasn't changed. I know you didn't want to get too deep into it, but what were your design responsibilities at at the New York Times? That is a pretty big mark on your resume. It's kind of hard to sure. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's hard to ignore. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, so at the New York Times, I was design director for NYTimes.com, which meant um, uh, I ran a design team of about. I can't even remember the numbers when I left, but about 20 people, um, designers, UX people, um, and client-side technologists or client-side coders. Um, and we worked on, you know, we didn't really call them products at that time. We did call them products. We weren't as, as gung-ho about the product terminology, um, but we worked on products on the web, on, um, you know, on Kindle when that came out, on 
iPhone and iPad and Android and all that stuff. Basically, productizing um, you know, Times content. Yeah, one one thing I find interesting. I, there's the I can't remember his name, but he just left the Times and he he wrote a blog post about it, going to Buzzfeed and he thanked you for hiring him and taking. Him oh, home. John. Yeah, John Niedermeyer. Yeah. Yeah, that was a cool post, and it sort of got me thinking. Like, what would it be like to design for? A publication like that today when you're looking at competition like BuzzFeed or even maybe to an extent medium like yeah what are the different design challenges there and like how how would you even start I mean I think one of one of the things I'm kind of grateful for is like it's not really my problem anymore yeah so I have friends who work at BuzzFeed and I think what they've done as a business is really interesting. I'm not super jazzed about what they've done for content in general. Um, and I think if you're at the Times and you're looking at BuzzFeed's amazing growth and and BuzzFeed's values, like what they what they value, and you look at the Times' relatively you know meager growth and what the Times values, I think it's a really it's a really difficult proposition. It's like how how do you square these things, and how do you how do you capture some of of BuzzFeed's growth, and while preserving you know what the Times values. That's that's really hard um, because I guess the Times could publish an article about that dress, but it, <laughs> it would be really depressing for everybody, you know. So. Um, so yes, yeah, to answer your question, like I, I don't know like how they square it, and I'm. I mean, to be honest, that's one of the reasons I left the Times. Is I, I sort of got tired of that problem. I got tired of the problem of, of of making this thing that I really loved, the the New York Times, like work in an environment that I'm less enthusiastic about, or, or work you know within parameters that I'm. I just I don't really. I don't really believe in, you know, in listicles or or what have you. So, how was the transition out? The transition out was. Did you go straight to a, another company? Um, I left and I took about six months off to figure out what I wanted to do next, and then I started Mixel. So, um, I mean, I I was really sad to leave, but I was I was ready to leave because I re- really wanted to figure out what was the next chapter for me. So, when Mixel started going downhill, what what? did you do from there i mean mixel got bought right yeah yeah we were we were acquired by etsy um and that was that was great and because that was like a like um a good exit for you know for the mixel team and for our investors um it feels like a values alignment too it's it's about creation as a crowd yeah yeah um i mean etsy is an amazing company and they really are a incredibly powerful platform for creativity i mean you look at the stuff that's on etsy it's un- like unbelievable like some of the stuff's on there it's also it's also amazing that a company like that could exist like you could build like a like a, a really profitable company with tremendous tremendously uh, laudable um values around people making stuff you know in their living rooms like that's awesome um, and they built a really great culture there, like around great employee experience, great customer experience, like you know, thinking about like where where the company can do good and not just make money. It's I think that's a it's a very impressive company, and it's, and it's here in New York, um, in Brooklyn, actually. So, um, but I mean, for me, like the acquisition. Like once, once I joined the Etsy team, like the the fit was was less comfortable, and um, um, they they didn't really have a great role sorted out for me, and it took a long time to figure out like where they would put me. Ultimately, the answer was like actually there was no place to put me. <laughs> so um, so um, I mean I I'm very grateful to Etsy, um, but it was not like the most ex- like pleasant experience for me to to be there and it was actually a really valuable lesson like i would never really want to be acquired again like i i think that that's not that's not what i i'm looking to do that's fair 
did, did you go straight from Etsy to Wildcard? And you mentioned you'd freelance for them for a while or contracted. Um, yeah, I took on like another six months off. I guess I tend to take about six months off between gigs. Um, and I actually left Etsy in the middle of 2013 and I actually started a whole bunch of projects. I started, um, I started writing my book. Um, uh, I started freelancing, um, I think in October with Wildcard a few days a week. Um, I started, um, talking to Adobe about, um, what became CompCC. I started a service called KidPost, which is, um, I do recall KidPost. Yeah. Yeah. That's something that that I'm still working on. Yeah, it's um it's like a nights and weekends project that I've been working on with two friends. It's basically a way to, to help parents continue to post pictures of their kids to Facebook or Instagram or what have you, and have that stuff automatically get sent out to um, their friends and and family, basically to to people who are not on social networks and you know most often like grandparents and stuff who have a hard time keeping up with that stuff um yeah so that i started as well and i started a couple other things um in the fall of 2013 and um and i, I expected to be doing that just be juggling a lot of different projects um and then i just really liked wildcard and um in january of 2014 um just decided to to you know sign up for five days five days a week there how do you balance the time between projects and this prolific blog and <sighs> the, the sheer amount of Twitter and family and yeah, wildcard and a family? It's remarkable. Oh, I don't know. I just, I think so. Part of the, the motivation for selling Mixel or, or, or doing the deal with Etsy was that in January of 2013, um, my wife gave birth to twin boys. So now we have three kids. We have a five-year-old. Um, daughter and and two now two year old sons um, and I just I, Etsy was going to make life more comfortable but after I left Etsy I was like oh my gosh now I can actually do more than one project at a time like, and that hadn't, hadn't been true since I started Mixel like I had to focus everything um, and so now I've got like two kids and I've got like a full time job, but it's you know it's still like a job, um, and I take it really seriously. But it's nice in that I can compartmentalize it. Um, and now like I look at my free time as like here's a chance to like do stuff that I couldn't do before. And am I going to sit down and watch like a whole season of some random show on Netflix, or am I going to actually going to do some stuff? And so the the, the situations, the circumstances have conspired to sort of make me value my time differently and now I spend a lot more time like trying to be productive whether that's on these projects or, or like really spending time with, with my family and being present for them um, and somehow it sort of turned out that like now I'm I'm able to finish these things though they, they feel like they take forever like the book I thought what the book was going to take like six months and it took like maybe you know 14 months to do so or longer, maybe. Yeah, I, remember, I remember Erica said you had you had called her up and did the interview, and then like she kind of forgot about it, and then <laughs> yeah, suddenly it came out, and she's like, "What? Yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah." I felt bad too because there's always like when you're working on those projects and it takes so long, especially if you know you've roped other people into them. There's always that feeling like, "Oh my god, did I just waste everybody's time?" Like I, I got to get this done so that they don't think I'm 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 a I'm a goof, you know. So. It's amazing how much what you tell people uh, and put out in the open really impacts how much you actually get done because you're like, hey, I said it. Yeah. We, we talked about that very first episode with the brag-driven development. Like, it's it's a thing. Yeah, if you say you're going to do something and uh, it's like a, I guess, the social pressure a little bit. Yeah. If you don't do it. Yeah. It's kind of shitty. And I've started tons of projects that I haven't finished. And, with, you know, each, and each one of those, I'm like a secret shame you know i i understand <laughs> i think we all so, know that one <laughs> yeah we, i think everyone knows it and it's like you don't want to be known as like the person that doesn't follow through yeah on things yeah at the same time it's like uh, some there's a reason you didn't go all the way with it like there's certainly something more valuable to you or or something yeah yeah but uh, I think that's about our time. Yeah, we like to keep I, it a, around an hour. Okay, so. great. And I know it's getting late there, so uh, we appreciate you coming on. Anything you'd like to plug? 
Um, you know, just the book, you know, how they got there. Dot us has a lot of our future guests as well. Oh, as great. Previous guests. Yeah. So yeah. perfect fit. If you like the show, yeah, the many more opportunities for you to mention the book in future episodes. <laughs> oh, we will. We got you. Yeah. We already did it once. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know, wild cards at trywildcard.com, kid post is at kidpost.net, and my blog is subtraction.com. Beautiful. Awesome. Those will all be in the show notes. Thanks so much for taking the time to yeah, chat. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, guys. Cool. Thanks Take care. So that's our show. It was a fun conversation. Really interesting. Lots of uh Wow. Koi has he's had done such a long everything. Can we get a how he got there? <laughs> yeah. Koi, write a book about yourself so we can learn. Um, if you enjoyed the episode, just uh, glance down if you're on your phone and look for five stars in your podcast app. And, and if it's not there, you can fix that. Yeah. Th- just, just kidding. Click. You have to go into iTunes. It can't just be any, any podcast Oh, yeah. App. iTunes ratings. Get uh, together, Brian. It's the details. It's the details. But really, uh, ratings and iTunes help us get in front of new people, huge reach a new job. audience. It is such a huge help. So if you enjoyed the show... Definitely rate us. Uh, if you have thoughts, suggestions, feedbacks, criticisms, hit us up on Twitter. We're at Design Details FM on Twitter, and we will reply to you. So thank you again for listening. Also, before we go, thanks again so much to IconFinder.com for making the show possible. Uh, check them out, IconFinder.com. Use the promo code ROBOT, and you're going to get 50% off your first month of IconFinder Pro, which gives you access to the largest source of premium vector icons on the web. They're going to make any design project you're working on so easy. Thank you again to Icon Finder. This episode was also brought to you by Envision, the only design platform that lets you prototype, collaborate, iterate, and user test all in one place. So you can start designing the future today. You can check them out today and let them know you came from the show by going to envisionapp.com slash signup slash design details, all one word. And we'll see you Wednesday with Divya Mannion and Brady Evans.